really a blessing to um, hear your pastor pray every week. That's a good thing. Thank you, Steve. Um, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. That's Mark 12, 18 through 27. Um, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we are going to look at this glorious text a second time. I preached this text last week. We're going to look at it a second time to attempt to like wring it dry of all that God has for us in it. Uh, we, we won't succeed, right? I'm letting you know like I won't succeed in doing that. There's always more to see in really any given text. That there's always more to apply. Um, scripture only has one meaning, but it can have thousands of applications, um, but we will try. Last week, I walked through this passage, and we looked at the, the big picture stuff uh, that our Lord Jesus had to say about the resurrection of the dead. We saw how the Sadducees approached Jesus and tried to trap him with a theology question about the resurrection, and then we saw how Jesus took him to school, right? He took him to school in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and proved the resurrection from the Torah. And then from there, we meditated on the glory of the world to come and the hope and joy that we have as we look forward to the resurrection on the last day. And it was, it was really a, a great time preaching that to you guys. I think many of you benefited from that, and we're grateful uh, for what the text taught us about the resurrection. Uh, but this week, even though we're in the same passage, we won't be considering the doctrine of resurrection from this text. Uh, instead, we will be considering what this text reveals to us about Jesus' character and how he settled theological disputes. Uh, so then, this sermon, this may seem a little bit weird, this sermon will not be an exposition about the question posed to Jesus and his answer about the resurrection. That's, that's not what I'm going to do. I did that last week, and I will be building off of some assumed knowledge of the text that we all gained last week. But what I want to do today is show you how our Lord interacted with the Sadducees in this passage. And in doing so, I think that we will see some principles that we can all take away and apply to our own lives, as well as highlighting the character and thinking of our Lord Jesus. And now we all confess that Jesus is God, and we all likewise confess that he is a man, right? He is the God-man, truly God and truly man, and he is the perfect man, right? The only man without sin. Why am I bringing that up? He is therefore the perfect example of what all of us ought to be. And we as Christians are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And there are things in this text um, that, that, that reveal to us how things about Jesus that we are to imitate as his disciples. This text shows us how we are to imitate him as his image bearers, as the new humanity in Christ. Right, so some, some, some things to consider. What is Jesus like? What did he care about? What was he known for? What was his reputation? How did he argue? I, I like to argue, so how did he argue? Right? How did he speak when engaged in controversy? What did he value? And what can we learn from him with regard to these things? I think our text answers these questions. Uh, it doesn't answer them exhaustively, but it does answer them with regard to certain issues. And as your pastor and your fellow Christian, I want us all to be more like our Lord. I want us all to love what he loves, to value what he values, to think like he thinks, and to speak like he speaks. And to that end, 
that we might be more like him in these areas, we will be looking at our text this morning. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy toward us. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for the gift of your word. Please help us this morning to listen well to your voice speaking through the word. Please open our hearts to receive what you have said. Help us to heed what you have said. And help us to imitate the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ that we see in your word, all while looking to him and his work alone as the ground for our salvation. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, now, before we get into the text, I, I need to make it, I mean, to make something clear. And, and as I look around, I, I, I know all of you, right? I, I don't believe we have any visitors here. Uh, but I must make this clear. Jesus is first our Savior, And then, and only then, is he our example. Right? I I said in the introduction, we're going to be looking at the example of Christ that we are to imitate. But know this, he must first be your savior. We are not moralists. We're not moralists. Christianity is not about making you a better person. It's not about making you more moral. And it's not about how Jesus is merely an example that we need to imitate. That is liberal theology. We reject that. Jesus is not merely an example. He is much more than an example. He is the savior of sinners. First and foremost, that is who Jesus is to us. He is the savior of sinners. He is our savior before he is our example. So let me say this. I'm not doubting anyone's profession of faith in this room right now, but I I must say this because I can't see hearts. If Christ, if you don't know Christ by faith, then this sermon will be of very little value to you. Trying to imitate the Lord Jesus apart from saving faith in him will just heap law upon you. What do I mean? His perfect example reveals what you should be and that you aren't it. That's all that his example can do for you apart from faith in him. You will see in this sermon what you should value and how you should speak and how you should think. But apart from faith in Christ, you have no savior to save you from the wrath of God for not living up to the standard and example of Jesus that you're going to see in this text. 
Apart from faith in Christ, this sermon will only serve to expose your sin and condemn you. And without Christ, you have no Savior from your sins. So let me say this before I go any further. You must believe upon Christ. You must recognize you're a sinner, confess to God you're a sinner, and believe that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough to justify you, to make you righteous in the eyes of God. You must depend wholly upon him. Before he can ever be your example, he must be your savior. Know that. Know that. And know that the beauty of it is that he truly is enough. In his life, death, and resurrection, he truly has done enough because there is nothing we could never attain perfection from the law. But God, as Paul says in Romans, God has done what the law could not do in Christ. God has saved us through Christ. You must know him as your savior before you can see him as your example. I just wanted to say that right off the rip. We're not preaching moralism here. We're not preaching moralism. Now, with that said, this sermon is meant to instruct believers. It's meant to instruct those who are saved. And as I said earlier, that's because those who have been saved are now being made more and more like Christ. And it is our joy to study the word and hear what God requires of us. So now we will consider the text before us. In in verses 18 through 23, Mark tells us that the Sadducees ask Jesus a question, and it's a Bible question. It's a theology question. In verse 19, they mentioned, Moses wrote for us, right? That is, they're referencing scripture, and then they summarize a text. The text that they summarize is Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, and it's a text about leveret marriage. As I said last week, leveret marriage doesn't have anything to do with the tribe of Levi. It comes from a Latin word that means brother-in-law. Right? If a man dies, his brother-in-law is supposed to marry the widow and raise up offspring for his dead brother. Right? And then in light of that passage that they summarize, the Sadducees ask Jesus a theology question about the resurrection in verses 20 through 23. So they're, they're asking Jesus to resolve a theological difficulty that is based on their understanding, really their misunderstanding, of a text of Scripture. And this actually reveals something to us about our Lord. Maybe you didn't see this. This reveals to us that Jesus cares about those things. Jesus cares about those things. What do I mean? Well, you don't ask Bible questions to someone who disregards the authority of the Bible. You will not catch me going down to our local Episcopalian or liberal Presbyterian churches and asking their leaders a question about the Bible. Why? Because they don't care what the Bible says. Those people don't believe what the Bible says, and I'm not going to waste my time. And listen, we all know this, you don't ask theology questions to people who don't care about theology. It would be a waste of your time, wouldn't it? And rarely we like to waste our own time. I don't ask my car mechanic friends about medicine, right? That's not their interest. That's not their field. They don't know about medicine. In the same way, you don't ask people who disregard the importance of theology questions about theological difficulties. So already the text has revealed that Jesus loves the Bible, And that might sound weird, right? We're like, well, he's God. Well, yeah. You think God doesn't love his own word? Right? God loves his own word. Jesus believes the Bible. And it shows us also that Jesus is a theologian. Right? Really, he is the theologian. 
to be more accurate, he is the, the theos. Theology means a word about God. He is the theos of which we are speaking about when we do theology. He is God. But he's a theologian. Our Lord, maybe you've not thought about him like this. Our Lord is a careful thinker. He makes nuances when he teaches all the time. He is a careful thinker who cares about what the Bible says and cares about connecting the truths of the Bible together in a cohesive, um, comprehensive, and understandable way. That's what he does when he teaches. This is what he was known for. Have you considered that? He was known as a Bible-believing theologian. He was a teacher, the master teacher. And again, he had a reputation for believing the Bible, loving the Bible, and thinking deeply about the Bible. And that is precisely the reason why these groups in chapters 11 and 12 keep coming to Jesus to ask him these things. They knew he cared about the Bible. They knew he cared about theology. Now, I want to be clear, they weren't sincere in their questions, but they knew that he was sincere in his answers. They knew that he really believed what he was saying and that he really believed the Bible, and that's why they came to him to talk about these things. By the way, there's going to be applications sprinkled all throughout this sermon. So already, let me say this. Christian, your Lord loves the Bible, and he loves theology, and so should you. So should you. Right? Shocker, the Reformed guy is telling you to, to love the Bible and theology. Right? These things are not for ivory-towered academics. Right? No offense to Nick. The Bible is for everyone, and everyone is a theologian. I believe R.C. Sproul wrote a book about that. Everyone is a theologian. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? Are you an orthodox theologian or are you a heretic? But know this, you do believe things about God. Everyone, rather the Bible is for everyone and everyone is a theologian. Every single one of the people of God should care about these things because they are for you. Now, don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand me because I know what some of you are are thinking. Some of you might be a bit intimidated by this idea. I am not saying that everyone has to be some great level scholar. It's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we should all have a love for the word and a love for studying theology. And that's because Jesus Christ loved these things. And so as we are able... And let's be clear, as we're able, with the intellectual gifting that God has given you, God has not blessed us all equally in that area, with the position in life and the resources that God has given us, we should all be pursuing greater knowledge in these things to one degree or another. We should. Jesus cared about them. He's our example. So men, let me say this, you should be leading your homes in this and a love for the word, and a love for sound doctrine. You should be leading your families in this. And that does not mean you have to be brilliant in these areas. That's not what I'm saying. What I mean is you should be fostering and promoting a love for the word and sound doctrine in your family. You should care about and love these things and let that spill over into your wife and children. And, and, and you should be, even if you're behind, even if your wife's smarter than you in these areas, as I'm sure that that's the case occasionally, No offense, guys, step it up a little. But even if you're behind, you should be modeling the pursuit of knowing God and his word. Your family should see that in you. Your wife should say, I know my husband cares about these things. Your children should say, I know my dad cares about these things. And furthermore, church, as a congregation, may God help us if it's only the ministers who are passionate about these things. 
Vody Bauckham preached a sermon one time. He said, why is it that every time that a young man in his 20s shows even the remotest interest in studying theology, we automatically say, you should be a preacher? He's like, no, that, that's, base, that's bare minimum. Every, every man in the church should be that way. But what do we do? We say, oh, you like the Bible and theology. You should be a preacher because, again, this is Vody Bauckham's words. So then we can put you in a category that doesn't make the rest of us uncomfortable for not being like that. I think that there's some truth there. And that's not good for the health of the church, especially a congregational Baptist church. You, we'll make bad decisions as a congregation if we don't know the Bible and if we don't know theology. And actually, by not knowing the Bible and theology, you will put yourself at the mercy of the elders who know more than you. No, you should be able to challenge us if we're wrong. And you'll only be able to do that if you yourselves know scripture and know how it all fits together. So let me encourage you, each one of us in this congregation, not just the heads of households, but each one of us are to grow in our understanding of God and his word. It's vital to the life of this church. It's vital to your life as a Christian. So already I want you to see just so far that your Lord loves these things. And I want you to see that you should imitate him. He loves the Bible he loves theology. And real quick, I know maybe some of you are thinking this, or maybe I just like to argue with myself when I write sermons. I don't know. <laughs> Did Jesus love people? Some of you say, well, he didn't just love theology and the Bible. He loved people. Yes, he loved people. Did he also love the Bible and theology? Yes, you don't have to choose, right? I I've actually had people say, well, you know, I'm really good at loving people. I'm not so good about loving the Bible. And I'm like, ah, if you don't love the Bible and don't know what the Bible says, then you don't know how to love people properly. <laughs> Why? Because God tells you how to do those things. You don't have to pick or choose. We must love all the things that Jesus loves. You can love people and love theology, even if people think that you're a jerk because you're willing to argue about theology, which we'll get into later. It's in the sermon. We should love all the things that Jesus loves. A second thing that we learn about Jesus in this text, here we go, Jesus is not afraid to be dogmatic and direct. Where, where do we see that in the text? The, the, the verses that make you chuckle a little bit because they don't sound very Jesus-y according to modern American culture. Verse 24, he says, you are wrong. In verse 27, he says, you are quite wrong. In verse 24, he says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These are, some of you are grinning. These are very direct statements that you don't hear very many American evangelicals using. These are pretty direct and dogmatic statements that Jesus made to the Sadducees. And the first thing for us to consider in this is that Jesus is indeed dogmatic. What do I mean? He draws lines in the sands about truth and error. He does not ignore the error of the Sadducees. Nor is he some kind of theological relativist who, relativist who thinks all opinions are equal. He doesn't believe that. The Sadducees deny the resurrection of the dead. Jesus knows that. And their question was meant to make him look foolish because they knew that Jesus disagreed with them and believed in the resurrection. But notice that Jesus in his answer doesn't say, you know, guys, that's a really good question, and, and I know what I believe, uh, but let's not focus on our disagreements. Let's try to focus on what we can agree on because, you know, after all, you have your interpretation and I have mine. That's not what he does. As I'd like to remind you all, he's not some hippie wearing Birkenstocks out in California. That's not what he does. He's not a relativist. That's not how Jesus dealt with error. Jesus engaged them and was dogmatic. He engaged them for the sake of truth. 
Let me put it this way. Jesus believes that doctrine matters and that theological error is serious. He does. Now, let's be clear about something. Some errors are indeed more serious than others. Jesus was dealing with a huge faith-destroying error in our text. The denial of the resurrection, the denial of any kind of afterlife, a denial of final judgment, right? A denial of, of a world to come. Those are faith-destroying errors that make you a formal heretic. But not all errors are that huge. Not all errors are that faith-destroying. Let me give you some examples. Denying the resurrection is a bigger deal than baptizing infants. We're Baptists here. We don't do that. We believe that that is an error, but that is not an error like denying the resurrection. Another example, denying the wrath-satisfying death of Christ in place of sinners is a bigger deal than denying congregational church government. Again, we're congregationalists. We think that other forms of church government are errors, but that's not the same as denying that Christ's death was propitiatory. Some errors are worse than others. Some errors break fellowship because the error has effectively created a different religion. And some errors don't do that. Right? There are such things as first and second level issues of doctrine. Or some of you have heard this, open-handed and closed-handed doctrines. The closed-handed stuff makes a fist because we have to fight about them and break fellowship about them. But let me say this. Even with that said... It all matters. It all matters. All doctrine matters. Please, hear me, please. This is, there's a, there's a push in modern evangelicalism that says if it's a secondary issue, then it doesn't really matter. That's not true. So often I hear, you know, does the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate matter? Well, listen, they're not going to go to hell for being Arminians. They'll be Calvinists once they, get, once they get to heaven, but it still matters. It still matters, right? Or, or, or does the debate about whether or not prophecy continues today, does that matter? Listen, there are many Pentecostals who are Christians. I've met Pentecostals who I think are further along in sanctification than I am right now, but it still matters, Right? Or, or this, this one's more bringing it home to our church. Does it matter whether or not we believe that the Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath? Yes, it's a matter of obedience to the God who saved us by faith alone in Christ alone. It's a matter of obedience. It all matters. If God said it and had it recorded in writing and preserved it for us through the ages that we might have an accurate record of God's word to men, then it matters. Let me put it to you this way. God did not reveal things to us in his word for fun. He didn't do it because he was bored. He doesn't get bored. He is pure being. He didn't do it for fun. He revealed things to us in his word so that we might know, understand, believe, and walk in what he has said. Scripture matters. Doctrine matters. Correct interpretations of the text matter. And Jesus knew that. We see it here in our text that he believed doctrine matters, and he was dogmatic when it came to truth and error. I heard one preacher commenting on this said, our Lord was not afraid of doctrinal controversy. He wasn't afraid of it. He is a man. He's not a coward. He's not one who says, you know, let's just go along to get along. I don't feel like fighting about this. No, he's not a people pleaser. He drew lines in the sand and he knew that sometimes controversy was not avoidable. 
When error rears its ugly head, Jesus was there to confront it. He was not afraid to enter into the fray for the sake of the truth of God. Jesus Christ is dogmatic. He distinguishes truth from error, and he wasn't sorry for it. He didn't apologize for doing so. Truth matters. Jesus knew it, and Jesus acted like it. A second thing for us to consider at this point is that Jesus, I said, he was dogmatic and he was direct. He was very direct with the Pharisees. That, that's what makes us chuckle a little bit when we see some of his words in this text. He was so direct. He doesn't mince his words in his response. He says twice, you are wrong. Well, actually, you are wrong and you are quite wrong. And he also tells them, again in verse 24, quite frankly, that they don't know the Bible or the power of God. He says, that's why you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. That is direct speech. Here's a thought for you. Maybe it'll make you uncomfortable. By 21st century American standards, if you had a theological debate with someone and spoke like Jesus spoke in our text, people would call you mean-spirited, rude, and unkind, and some of your fellow Christians would probably accuse you of sinning. It's probably how that would go down, right? Why'd you have to be so rude, man? Right, that was a little harsh. I don't think you had to say it quite like that. What about their feelings? Right? Or, or, or this, that's not how you win people to Christ. You don't know. You can't be like that. But we know that that can't be true of Jesus. He's the sinless one. He is the spotless lamb of God. He is the just who died for the unjust. So then, Jesus' words here actually help us. Please hear me. We need to hear this. Jesus' words here actually help us to mature in our thinking about what is direct speech and what is unkind speech. Notice that Jesus does not insult them. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't say, you don't know the truth here because you're stupid. <laughs> That's not what he says here. He doesn't make fun of how they look, right? You ugly Sadducees. He doesn't say anything like that to them. He doesn't mock the way that they talk or anything like that. He does not attack the person. He attacks the, the problem at hand. He attacks the error. He attacks their theology. He doesn't attack them. He just frankly tells them that they're wrong and then shows them from Scripture in verse 26 why that they're wrong. Please hear me. That is not rude. That is not rude. If you think that that's rude, then you're accusing Jesus of sinning and you've just made him a sinner and that means he can't save people from their sins and you're going to hell. It's not rude. It's not rude. This is actually godly behavior. To defend the truth, consider this, to defend the truth with the proper attitude is actually a form of worship and obedience to God. Jesus was direct with the Sadducees because truth is important but he certainly did not sin in his speech in our passage. I had an illustration here that I'm going to skip for the sake of time. Being direct is not the same thing as being rude. Brothers and sisters, when engaging in theological conversations, clarity and directness is important. It is not wrong to tell somebody what you just said is heresy. Being clear is important. 
looking someone in the face and telling them, you are twisting the scriptures and that is not what the Bible says, is not mean. That is clear and direct speech. And that kind of clarity and directness is important. Please, please hear me. I know what we're all prone to, because believe it or not, I'm actually prone to it as well. I'm not half as harsh as I want to be, contrary to what some people think. And pray for me. I'm seriously working on it, like how to speak the truth gently and pray for me, sincerely. But know this. We must not muddy up the waters of truth by trying to spare people their feelings when they're in error. We can't. You can't soften your words when it comes to truth and error just because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings, especially when they're in serious error and denying an essential doctrine of the faith. To quote Steve Lawson, we shouldn't be dogmatic. We should be bulldogmatic. You, you shouldn't mince your words. Doctrinal discussions need bold, straightforward, clear speech in order to vindicate the truth and rebuke and refute error. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing in this text. To make you laugh a little bit, uh, I want to quote Vody Bauckham here. Jesus did not obey the 11th commandment of modern Christianity. What's the 11th commandment? Thou shalt be nice. And if you obey the 11th, you can ignore the other 10. That is the, modern, that is the 11th commandment of modern Christianity. <laughs> Thou shalt be nice. Hear me. Jesus' answer here is not nice. It's not. I'm not saying it's sinful. Certainly not sinful but it's not nice. He flat out told them that they're wrong. He told them, you're wrong, you don't know the Bible, and you don't believe in God's power. That is not nice according to our culture. It's not. It offended them. I'm, I'm sure it offended them. It offended them so much they wanted to kill him. It offended them, but Jesus laid the truth before them anyway. Now, with that said, I know that quite a few of us don't really have a problem with being super direct with people whenever it comes to theological error, and I would include myself in that number. So let me say this. This is not how Jesus spoke with everyone. If you're like me, listen. This is not how Jesus spoke with everyone, and this is not how Jesus spoke all the time. He knew when to be gentle. He knew when he was dealing with a broken person who did not need harshness but compassion. He knew when a disciple or seeker was asking a genuine question and looking for clarity because they were confused. Like, look how he interacts with the disciples who time after time just don't get it. But they're disciples, and they're dumb. So he has compassion upon them. And he also knew when the truth was being assaulted by unbelievers and heretics. He knew how to distinguish situations. Our Lord gave the right word at the right time, in the right way, with the right tone, every single time that he spoke. He was perfect in his speech. So then, I say that to say this. This text and the point that I just made is not an excuse for any of us to be rude to people or use no tact in your speech ever. Rudeness is still a thing. Don't misunderstand me. It's still a thing. Unkind speech is still sinful, and we must all use wisdom when we speak. And even when correcting people, God's word says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, God's word says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Why do we want to correct people's theology so that they will escape the snare of the devil and come to a knowledge of the truth? If you're doing it just for fun, you're doing it for pride. If you're doing it just so that everyone thinks that you're right and they can know how right you are and how wrong they are, you're sinning. It's coming out of pride. You may be telling them the truth, but it's not coming from the right place. Paul's telling Timothy here, you're supposed to do it because you want what's good for them, and that's why you've engaged in this. That's why Jesus engaged with the Sadducees, in order to correct them for their good. So that's a word to me. That's a word, I think, to some of us here. We must be gentle and do this for the right reasons because we care about the people and the fact that they're in error. A third thing we learn from Jesus' words in our text is actually something about ourselves. Jesus reveals to us in verse 24 the source of all theological error. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Misunderstanding the Bible and not believing what you've read. That's the source of all theological error. If we knew the word perfectly and perfectly believed what God has said, there would be no error. Brothers and sisters, it is always this way. Hear me. If you don't know the word, you will wander into error. It might not be a formal heresy. It may not be a damnable heresy, but you will wander into error. If you don't know the word, if you don't know the scriptures, you are susceptible to straying in huge ways. The oneness Pentecostals that meet down the road and in many other places in Scioto County, they exist because they twist the scriptures into denying the doctrine of the Trinity. The Jehovah's Witnesses exist because they emphasize passages about Jesus' humanity and ignore passages about his divinity. Mormonism exists because they just don't know their Bibles. Charismaticism exists. Word of faith movement exists because they don't believe that the Bible is sufficient as the Bible says that it is. Ignorance of the word of God is the only way that such aberrant groups can emerge. And I know those are like the, some of the big ticket error groups, but all even small theological errors exist because of ignorance or misunderstanding of the word or just not believing what you've read. Please hear me. Ignorance of the scriptures is soul-destroying stuff. That's what Jesus is teaching us in our text here. Not knowing the word can lead to damning error. So let me say this. You must know your Bible. You must know your Bible. It's not an option. Please hear me. It's not for super Christians. You must know your Bible. Without the word, we are in darkness and not only that, but without knowing the word, we are subject to all manner of error. All kinds of error if we don't know the scriptures. That's actually how the cults prey on evangelical Christians. I could send, the, I could send a Jehovah's Witness to your average evangelical's home who does not know anything about defending the, the deity of Christ or the doctrine of the Trinity, and that Jehovah's Witness will tie that person in knots and potentially lead them to heresy. And I know that because the first time that a Jehovah's Witness knocked on my door, he put me in a pretzel. 
If you don't know the Bible, you are subject to all kinds of error. But on the other hand, what a blessing it is to know the Word of God. The second half of Psalm 19, right? we read at the, the call to worship, speaks of how sure and steady and faithful and pure and good and reliable and useful that the Bible is. Or Psalm 119, the longest portion of Scripture. If you think that that was on accident, you're foolish. The longest single portion of Scripture, Psalm 119, is all about how good the Word of God is and all the benefits that we have when we have God's Word. This is huge. And how could we forget Paul's words to Timothy? Like this, is the, this is the New Testament version of Psalm 119. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And just a brief word about that. Paul tells Timothy, when you have the book of God, you don't need anything else. You are complete, equipped for every good work. And he says that to a pastor. And the pastor, is that's the man of God here. He says that to the pastor. If it's true for the leaders of the church, is it not true for the laity of the church? If the minister is sufficient whenever he has the Bible rightly understood, then is not the Bible sufficient for all of us? Of course. When you have the book and you know it well, you have all you need. That's what Paul tells Timothy. You're fully equipped to do everything that God would have you do as a Christian. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is central and it is such a blessing. I own like 15 Bibles. That is unheard of in church history. One, ch one church in a city would own a Bible. We are so blessed to have our own copies of the Word, with, and it's all in one book and with golden gilded pages. Not, what, what is that? That, is, that was unheard of until the 1500s. It, would be, it used to be you go to church and you heard the Word read, usually in fairly copious amounts, and that's all the Scripture that you get for the week. Why? Because you can't read and you don't own a Bible because it costs about a year's worth of wages to get a Bible. We are so blessed to have the word of God on our phones, on our computers, multiple copies of it in our, on our tasks and all the rest. And yet so often we don't care to crack it open. To whom much is given, much is required. That's what Jesus says. And we have been given an embarrassment of riches when it comes to knowing the word in our day. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is a blessing. The Word shows us our sin, and it shows us our Savior. It guides us, it corrects us, it rebukes us, it reveals God, it encourages us with the promises of God. Know this, the book that you hold in your hand is the greatest treasure that you possess in this world. The book of God is glorious. As Psalm 19.10 tells us, more to be desired are they that is God's words, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This is the most precious, sweetest thing that we have, is the word of God. Brothers and sisters, we must know it. We must know it. A fourth thing that we learn from our text is how Jesus argued he argued from the book, from the word of God. In verse 26, our Lord, making his case for the resurrection, quotes and briefly expounds on Exodus 
He says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? He's getting very specific. He knows the Bible, by the way. There were no chapters and verses back then. You just had to know around what passage that it was. It was all in scrolls and all that good stuff. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus makes his theological doctrinal argument from the Bible. Now, let's think for a moment about how Jesus could have answered this is always my, my go-to illustration. Jesus could have snapped his fingers, turned off the sun, turned it back on, answered their question, and then said, anyone else want to say anything? <laughs> right? Because I said so. Can you turn the sun off? Didn't think so. Shut up. Like, that's what he could have said if he wanted to. He could have simply said, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am God come in the flesh, and I said so. And it would have been legitimate for him to do so. Because he is God. He could have answered them that way. But it's striking for us to see that Jesus based his doctrine in Scripture instead of a raw display of his power as God. He based his argument in the Bible. He didn't have to, but he did it anyway. And that tells me that this was done as an example for us. If you're paying attention as you read the Gospels, Jesus does this all the time. Have you not read? It is written, God spoke to you and said... He, all the time, when he's dealing with people and teaching and, and debating people, he's always appealing to the scriptures. He's always quoting from the Old Testament to substantiate his claims and his doctrine. He loves the Bible. It's his book, after all. He loves it. And so as an example to us, he teaches us to love and rely upon the book for our doctrine. Notice this, especially you guys who, who, who count yourself like really hardcore in the Reformed movement. Notice also that Jesus does not say, Rabbi so-and-so once said, or high priest or priest so-and-so said. That's not what he does. He does not argue from the authority of theologians. He does not argue from the authority of men, no matter how great or highly recognized or highly esteemed. Rather, he argues from the text of Scripture. This is our example. We are to go to the Word of God to settle disputes about the things of God. Now, real quick, does that mean that you're not allowed to quote theologians? No. Absolutely not. Like, you, you can absolutely quote them. As long as what you're quoting is their exposition of Scripture and not them as men. Don't appeal to John Calvin because John Calvin said so. Who's Calvin? I'm serious. Who's Calvin? I plan on, if God gives me a son, I'm going to name him Calvin. Right? But who's Calvin? No. If his exposition of the text is accurate, appeal to Calvin. But not, John Calvin said so. That's stupid. That's not how Jesus argues here. Uh, sorry, that was a bit harsh. That's foolishness. I'm working on it. <laughs> Quote all the theologians you want so long as you are referring to their explanation of the Bible on a certain issue. Learn from the people who came before you. Read books. Read commentaries. Read the old dead guys. That's great. And honestly, you're foolish if you think that you don't need to listen to what others who have come before you had to say but you're to listen to them to see how they understood what the Bible was saying. And then you yourself are to put up your filters and discern what they're saying by what you know about the word of God already. 
to the best of your ability to see whether or not that they're right. Test everything by the scriptures. That's the bottom line. Every argument that we make for what we believe and do is to be grounded in scripture because that's what we see Jesus doing here. Before we move away from this major point about, about Jesus arguing from scripture, there's a secondary point that I want us to see, and I think that you'll find this interesting, and it's super important to how we do theology. Notice in verse 26 that Jesus argues from an implication in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. What do I mean? Well, that verse, Exodus 3, 6, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, that verse is not explicitly about the resurrection of the dead. It's not. God's just declaring that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not explicitly about the resurrection. But Jesus sees something in that verse that implies the resurrection. Again, if God is their God and they're dead, then they must be alive somewhere else. Is that what the text actually says? No. Is that what's implied in the text? Yeah. Jesus argues from an implication from Exodus 3.6. And this teaches us something super important about our Lord. He was not a biblicist. He was not a biblicist. Now, what is biblicism? Let, let me define that real quick because it sounds real good, doesn't it? Who doesn't want to be a biblicist? It just sounds like that you believe the Bible. The word is used differently by different people, but let me explain what I mean when I'm using it right now, and I think this is the proper use of it. Biblicism is the belief that you have to have a black and white explicit statement from Scripture if you're going to believe something. You'll hear people say, where's that verse? And then you take them to a passage and you say, well, here, like this implies what I just said. And they say, well, that's not what the verse says. Right? That people that think you need a black and white explicit statement from Scripture in order to believe a doctrine, that is biblicism. But clearly, Jesus did not believe that. And again, we know that because Exodus 3.6 is not explicitly about the resurrection of the dead. But it does make some implications about the resurrection of the dead. So then we must conclude that Jesus believes, hear me, this is so important. Jesus believes that implications from statements of Scripture are just as much the word of God as explicit statements of Scripture. Or as the Westminster Confession would put it, good and necessary consequence of Scripture is the word of God. So then we must conclude that Jesus believes, again, implications are just as much the word of God as explicit statements. Now hear me, I brought this up for pastoral reasons. I know that some of you float towards being biblicists. And I know that because I talk to you about certain doctrines and it shows up a little bit. Some examples. David, show me a verse in the New Testament that tells me I have to keep the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. Or this one. Dave, show me a verse that tells me that congregationalism is the biblical form of church government. I'll shoot straight with you. Those verses don't exist. But there are implications of those things found all over the place. And to be honest, I, I don't think that you really are biblicists. And I say that because biblicism will take you places that you don't want to go. Let me give you five brief examples. One, there is no explicit verse that declares that God is one in essence and three in person. That verse doesn't exist. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no verse that tells you God is a Trinity. You have to deduce multiple things from multiple texts in Scripture that are implied, and then boom, you get the doctrine of the Trinity. A second one is Baptists. Know this. There is no explicit verse that says you should not baptize infants. 
Third, there is no explicit verse that declares Jesus is fully God and fully man. You have to deduce that from multiple texts. Fourth, there is no explicit verse that condemns bestiality in the New Testament. It's not. It's not there. You say, well, surely we're not like that. It's an animal, and God says like sexual intimacy is supposed to be between a man and a woman, so that would rule out everything else. Those are implications you're arguing from. Fifth, there is no explicit verse in the New Testament that tells you to join a church. It's just it's implied that you already are a member of one. All of those are examples of doctrines and ethics and practices that we learn from the implications of the text of Scripture. So Jesus shows us by example, again, that what is implied in the Word of God is the Word of God. And what does this mean? It means that we must read our Bibles very carefully. Read them very carefully. We must think deeply on what the text says on the surface, what it might be implying, what it presupposes as its foundation, and how it fits together with the rest of Scripture. And it also te teaches us that theological arguments based on implications from the text are valid because that's what our Lord did here. Now, brothers and sisters, let me say this again. The, the book that you hold in your hands is more glorious and more packed with truth than you could ever imagine. And so we should devote ourselves to mining it for the gems that are held within, thinking deeply on the text. Now, we've looked at a lot of different things in this text. I've been up here for a while. Much of this sermon has to do with the centrality of Scripture and the necessity of sound doctrine. So what are we to do with all of this? How are we going to tie this all together? Well, there are many applications that can be made and have been made throughout this sermon, but a huge application for us is this. You ready? Here we go. All beliefs and religious traditions must be evaluated and reformed by the word. The Sadducees in our text had their tradition about the resurrection. And Jesus confronted them with the word of God. And he did so boldly and plainly. And then the Sadducees were at a crossroad. They had two options. One, they could continue in their error and resist the Lord and stay in their sin and darkness. Or they could repent and reform according to the word of God. Those are always the options. Are they not? Those are always the options. Continue in error or be reformed by the word. There's no third option, and the same is just as true for us today. When God has spoken, we must submit. Hear me, even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if it means we have to forsake the beliefs of our parents, even if it means that we must embrace truths and practices that make us unpopular with the world, or this one even if it means that we must become unpopular with our fellow Christians. We must. When God has spoken, the matter is settled, and Christ is calling us to submit to the word. Every time that we open the book of God, Jesus is calling us to submit, and he's calling us to this for our good and the glory of God. So let's bring this home to each one of us. Is there... I'm asking this as a genuine question. Is there a point of Bible teaching or doctrine that maybe you've been fighting against? Is there something God has confronted you with in his word and you need to stop arguing with him and instead submit to his majesty? Is it a doctrine? Is it a pet sin 
Do you say, well, it's a small sin. It's not that big. If it's so small, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, if it's so small, then give it up. Is it a pet sin that needs forsaken? Is there some good practice that you need to adopt? Is there a hard conversation that you need to have with someone that you know is in error? Is there some good for the brethren that you need to do? Listen, I don't know how this applies to each one of us this morning, and maybe it doesn't apply to you right now. Maybe you are not fighting anything as far as you know, and I hope that that is the case for us all. right? And as, as, as the author said to the Hebrews, we, we, have, we think better things of you. right? We hope for the best. I hope that that's the case. And if that is the case, that there's nothing that you're currently fighting against God about, here's a word for you. Put these things in your pocket and take them with you. Because the word is eventually going to confront you and you're going to need to remember what you've learned today. So in conclusion, this text has taught us a lot about our Lord. He loves the Bible. He loves theology. He loves sound doctrine. He is dogmatic about the truth. And he is direct when confronting error. He argues from the scriptures, even from the implications of scripture. And he calls each one of us to submit to the word of God in all things. And he does so for our good and his glory. So then, may God help us to imitate our Lord and passionately love the, the, love the word of God and live in the light of it. In other words, as I close, may God help us to be like Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and King, we thank you for your word that not only gives us doctrine, but it gives us very practical examples of how we should live and how we should think. And we see many of them from our Lord Jesus, who is the perfect man, even the God-man. God, I pray that you would take the truth of your word that is about the centrality of your word and drive it deep into our hearts so that we might be pushed to the Bible more and more, that we might be pushed to listen to more and more preaching, that we would be pushed more and more to study your word. And I pray that God, as we do so, I pray what your son prayed. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Make us holy. Give us backbones of steel. Help us to be like our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.